Welcome to episode 23 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we are doing yet another installment in our Publishing 201 series, we will be covering sales conference. Mm-hmm. So before we get started on sales conference itself, I think Kelly and I wanted to give you a little bit of an overview of not the editorial process of publishing necessarily, but the actual like publishing, publishing part of <laughs> part of it. Um, so, you know, obviously there's a lot of stuff that goes on after your book gets acquired, you know, on your end with the editor, you're working on the book itself, making the content great, making it stronger and the best book that you can possibly make it. Um, and then sort of on the actual publishing side. Now, publishing comprises of marketing, publicity, art, and a sales force. So why don't we define, Kelly, what the sales force actually is? Um, well, you have a team, um, of people usually in-house. Sometimes there can be, um, external sales force as well, but we'll kind of get into that later. But basically the publisher will have a sales department, um, and each member of that department will have individual accounts that they maintain. So there will be someone whose account is Barnes and Noble and someone whose account is, you know, a little local bookstore, you know, in some regional place. And, you know, kind of depending on what the publishing house offers, what genres they have, you know, there's a lot of, um, independent mystery bookstores. So if, you know, your imprint does a lot of mystery publishing, then someone will have an account with those individual stores, Amazon, so on and so forth. Anywhere that you can sell books, um, a sales force, a, a sales team member would have an account. And it is then their job to, um, to sell books to that account, to introduce the vendor, the bookseller, to what the books are, to hype them up, to explain you know, more about them, um, to keep those, to make that initial sale where they place their initial order. And then anytime they want to refill that order, um, they would go through that salesperson. Yeah. The, this is, this can be a little bit disheartening when I say it this way, but not every book gets into every bookstore. Oh no, not even remotely. Um, because if, you know, we're talking about physical bookstores, of course, there is just simply not enough space in the world to carry all, every book that is published every year. And, you know, so sale, the sales force is responsible for getting as many books from that season's catalog into a bookstore's inventory, basically, you know, the sales reps, um, in the sales force, there can be, you know, as Kelly said, they are sort of divided by, they can be divided by category. So you have, you know, somebody who does the mystery thrillers, someone who does romance, someone who does, you know, women's fiction, someone who does military fiction, someone who does young adult children's fiction. So, you know, they're kind of sort of specialty breakdowns within the sales forces for, 
publishing imprints themselves. Um, but you know, basically these people go out into the field, quote unquote, meet with, in, you know, book buyers. Mm. Now the position of the book buyer that we're talking about is not the consumer. The book buyer is actually a position held by bookstores. The book buyer decides what gets put in the inventory. They're the ones that decide what books they're going to put in the bookstores. Now, that's like one person, by the way. <laughs> yeah, like there's a book buyer for Barnes & Noble. Yes, like literally <laughs> one person who stocks every single Barnes & Noble. Yeah, yeah, it's really... I think Barnes & Noble might have a YA children's person and, you know, and a person for everything else. So their Barnes & Noble might have two. Um, but, I mean, it's to max. It's usually one person for the entire store. Um, and so maintaining a good relationship with that person is important. Um, understanding what that person's, you know, of course that person isn't buying solely to their taste, but, you know, as you maintain a relationship and establish a relationship with that book buyer, you'll know what they're more likely to want. And you're able to position your books in such a way as to make them appealing to that buyer. Um, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into it and, uh, a lot of time. And it's, it's very much about, um, those personal relationships, building a good relationship with that buyer. I mean, basically say the sales force and the buyers, they're not of course buying to their personal tastes, but they have a familiarity with the market on a much more in a much more direct way than say people like editors and agents um aside from consuming for their own personal reading tastes the sort of interaction that buyers and and sales force people have with the market is kind of on a ground level and it's it's a little bit different so we're going to we're going to keep bringing up these terms <laughs> during our discussion of sales conference you know the sales people and the buyer and the buyer is not all you lovely listeners out there who walk into bookstores and buy books to read, the buyer is a handful of very, very, very important people in the industry that <laughs> de who determine yeah. whether or not your book gets into a bookstore. And this is why I know on previous podcasts we mentioned, you know, how um, important Barnes & Noble is that, you know, essentially that buyer is um, in terms of like cover concepts or other things where – you know, Barnes and Noble has said, nope, we're not going to take that book. We don't like the cover. And then it's like, you can get a new cover put on a book stat if it will <laughs> improve Barnes and Noble's chance of uh, placing an order. So, you know, not just at Barnes and Noble, but at all bookstores, um, all the accounts that they have, these people are uh, very influential and um, it's important to get them to stock as many of your books as possible. And, and to make a note, this is why it is difficult to get self-published books, print books into bookstores. Um, you know, e self-publishing ebooks, you know, is fairly democratic. You know, you get somebody who can make the ebook file for you, hire somebody to make your cover and you can upload it to various marketplaces, Amazon, Kobo, you know, iTunes, whatever. But print if you don't if you don't have a direct contact with the buyer <laughs> of said bookstores 
then it will be pretty difficult to get your self-published print novel. Um, that That's why. That's kind of the big reason why. Yeah. All right. So um, before, again, before we get into the nitty-gritty of sales conference, this, throughout the course of publishing, your book kind of gets brought up multiple times. So when your editor is trying to acquire your book, the editor will bring it to the acquisitions board and say, this book is about blank. We think we can sell it here. You know, we think it will, you know, appeal to this market. You know, this is really wonderful. And then they buy it and then launch comes up. Now publishing has seasons. And I think we've mentioned this before. It's usually winter, spring, summer, and fall. So three major seasons or three catalogs that they put their books into, that these put their books into these lists, essentially. Um, and every season, about a year ahead, like uh, nine months to 12 months ahead of the actual season itself, the editor will sit in front of sales and marketing and launch the book to that force. Uh, for example... Right now, most publishers are probably doing their winter 2017 lists. Um, and they just, and then so that's, that happens, launch happens. And then a couple months later, a couple months after launch is sales conference where again, the editor goes and this time presents directly to the sales force. And this is further along in the publishing process at this point. Um, the final draft is usually in and we, they usually have a cover to present, um, so, and blurbs and all that sort of stuff. So we have a little bit more material to present directly to the sales force at sales conference. Um, so I actually haven't really been to that many. (laughs) (laughs) It's very long. Mm -hmm. Uh, and sometimes they're off site. Um, Mm -hmm. they're not always held in the actual building. Um, so I've been to one, but I think Kelly's been to more than, more than I have. I've been to more sales conferences than I (laughs) can even care to count. Um, for several reasons, um, I started attending sales conferences when I was a, um, publishing assistant and then, uh, continued as a contracts manager Um, One of my jobs as a publishing assistant was essentially to um, prepare the sales conference. I mean, all the editors would give me their lists and all the information that they needed, and I would have to assemble everything um, in one sheets, which we'll talk about soon, and um, some other things. During some of our larger sales conferences that were off-site, I had to, you know, basically event plan (laughs) the entire thing. Um, so I attended those in that capacity. Um, and then it was also important for me to attend, uh, when I was a contracts manager, because I was the person who had the most information about what rights were available. And, um, Salesforce is very interested in that. You know, the foreign team will also come to sales conference and people want to know how many books are contracted and if it's a series and, you know, all this other stuff that, um, a contracts manager, uh, will have at their fingertips. And so I have attended, I don't even think I could count them, you know, if there were three a year and it was several years, I mean, I don't know, at least into double digits, (laughs) (laughs) of sales conferences that I've attended. Um, so, you know, 
what is a sales conference? We've kind of basically gone over that, but it is your, your sales and marketing team has heard about your book previously. You know, oftentimes members of those departments are present at the acquisitions meeting. Um, as JJ just mentioned, they'll be there again at launch. So they've heard about your book, um, previously, but they haven't really worked on your book yet for the most part. It's just been kind of like something that they're aware of and they give their advice um, and their opinions and input in terms of launching the book in the direction that it's going to take. But really for the sales force, um, they don't start to really sell a book until um, a season or two ahead of time. And so sales conference is always, you know, at least one season ahead of the book's before they come out, uh, sometimes two. And the reason for that is you have to sell the book ahead of time because on release day, you want it to be in stores. If you don't, if you wait to sell it until it publishes, then bookstores aren't going to have it in stock on the day that it comes out. So you have to start selling it early. And sales conference is the big official starting point for those sales. This is the time when the sales reps are going to learn the list. They're going to learn everything about the books, everything about the authors, um, all of the special um, information that they can use to really entice their book buyers and their various accounts. Um, this is when they really start to put um, their foot on the gas and really take off in terms of selling the book. It is, it can vary, you know, sometimes they're kind of small and everybody will just kind of pack into the boardroom and you'll get through um, the whole thing. Um, other times, like JJ said, they can be off-site. They can be really elaborate. I've gone to sales conferences that have only lasted one day. I've gone to sales conferences that have lasted a week. Um, it really depends on the size of your publisher, the size of the catalog, um, you know, what the lead titles are for that catalog. Um, there's a lot of factors that can... can um, make that vary. So who attends a sales conference? The editorial team does. All the editors will be there. The internal sales reps, which we talked about. External sales reps I wanted to talk about a little bit. Um, oftentimes, publishers will, will contract with um, sales reps or an, an agency that will target certain sales markets, or sometimes they're regional, um, sometimes they're niche markets, but a lot of times publishers will have these contracts with outside sales reps beyond just their internal force just to really increase, um, you know, the sales of the book. In a lot of cases, if such um, contracts exist with outside agencies, they'll bring those sales reps in so that they can learn the list. Um, marketing and publicity will be there. Like I said, contracts will be there. The foreign team will be there. Essentially everybody. <laughs> Not accounting. Accounting won't be there. It also but just about everyone depends else. depends on the house because for, uh, on my end anyway, usually the ones who did go to sales conference were our editor-in-chief, our publisher, um, any editors who are working on lead titles that season, um, and then the others, it was kind of up to them if they wanted to attend sales conference, um, but the list would be presented by other people. 
So it's not entirely universal across the board. Um, but well, let, let's let's talk about the structure, I guess, of of a presentation. Like what happens when an editor shows up to present the list. Um, mm-hmm. We are going to talk a little bit about how the list gets prioritized, but as an example, we'll just you know have an editor come in with all of their. We'll choose uh, fall 2016 because that's kind of probably the sales conference that they're, they've dealt with now. So you've got a book coming out fall 2016 this year. You go to sales conference. What happens? You know, the editor mm-hmm. sits down. So um, there is some sort of a presentation. Um, the editor basically wants to communicate a couple of key things about the book. You need to communicate the title, the author, author a synopsis, um, the price, some of the book specs. Um, but basically, you want to describe the book to them. And this is where, um, you know, the editor or whoever it is that is presenting the book, usually it's the editor, sometimes the editorial director, um, if you're not presenting your own books that you've acquired. You you know, the sales force is intelligent. They can read the jacket copy. They, you know, will have materials in front of them that can give them um, all of that information. The editor wants to give them more. The editor wants to give them that extra level um, of, you know, just deeper understanding about the book, about the author, about the vision for the project and what their hopes for it are. And just really, you know, the editor really wants to sell it to the sales force, Mm -hmm. um, quite frankly. So they're going to communicate basic information about the book and about the author. Um, the cover will be shown a lot of times there's like a PowerPoint presentation and it will be, you know, up on a big screen. Sometimes they'll have, um, samples, there'll be galleys or, um, other bound books or else the art department can print out, you know, poster size covers, uh, things like that will be there. Um, you know, basically it's, it's split between the details about the edition or the volume of the book itself, the page count, the size, the price, you know, what rights and territories we have, things like that. And then the creative meat of the book. This is the author and the author is, you know, you describe who the author is, you give a brief bio, you show the author picture. Um, and then this is the story. This is the heart of the story. A lot of times editors will have like what's labeled as a sound bite or a hook, which is like something that the sales force can feed their buyer to really hook them in yeah, beyond like a, just the a tagline or yeah, this is often why you see the X meets Y, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. formula they will always come back around. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, and so the editor will present all this information. The sales force will also have most times, um, some kind of a physical thing in front of them. Sometimes they have copies of the catalog. Often there's what's called one sheets, which is basically all this information about this book on one sheet. We called them tip sheets. (laughs) Did you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, you know, but it's basically everything. It will have also comp titles, Mm -hmm. um, both internal comps and external comps, um, to help the sales force get an idea of where they want to position it. Um, so it will be all this information, 
um, that they'll have in front of them on paper and that the editor will present to them. And the sales force will have the opportunity to ask questions of the editor if there's specific things that they want to know. One thing that comes up a lot um, that I've heard in the sales conferences that I've attended is that the sales team always wants to know about the region. Where is this book set? You know, because if this book is set in Virginia, then you can go to your accounts in Virginia mm -hmm. and, you know, push that angle. So everybody always wants to know the setting of the book. Um, the big sort of markets in terms of regions tends to be the South. Uh, mm -hmm. The South is a pretty big one. New York <laughs> is a pretty Obviously. big one. Um, the West is kind of this large nebulous region. This just kind of categorizes the West. Mm -hmm. um, but if you get books kind of sent in L.A., they kind of spark a little bit of interest. But surprisingly, L.A. isn't as big of a, of a draw as people might think. <laughs> <laughs> but it really is the sort of like Southern fiction is, mm -hmm. has really strong regional buy-in. Um, especially now that I've moved to the South, it, to me, it's kind of interesting, uh, to have these authors constantly touted, you know, a Southern author, this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was kind of like, that's really interesting to me, um, that there's a lot of regional pride here and New York books. And that, I don't know if that's just biased because publishing is mostly centered in New York city, but, um, you know, New York is a very big market in itself. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so region is always a big one that the sales team always wants to ask. I know when I first started putting together one sheets and doing sales conference prep, we didn't include the region. Um, and then like probably by my fourth or fifth one, the editors were like, can you just put the setting in there so that they just have it? <laughs> because they would always ask at the end of every single presentation, oh, where's the book set? And so then the editors could be like, oh, it's on your sheet. <laughs> you can just look right there. There it is. Um, the presentations themselves can kind of run the gamut. Um, sometimes they're really casual. It's just a PowerPoint presentation, you know, and some props and the editor just kind of speaks about the book. Um, sometimes they can be much more elaborate. Um, there are rare occasions at sales conference in which authors will be invited to speak either in person or via Skype. Um, this is really, really rare. It is usually only, you know, for huge, huge lead titles, you know, or someone that is um, so such a big name on the list um, that their presence could galvanize the sales force in a way that, you know. Yeah, I mean, if if you're working on a self-help book, sometimes getting mm -hmm. the author to speak can really get a sense. You can get a sense of what their speaking style is, what's so charismatic mm -hmm. or mesmerizing about them. Um, this is not a common occurrence for fiction no. at all. <laughs> um, no, I think in all the sales conferences I've been to, we've only had one fiction author attend. Um, and of the handful of other times that we had other authors attend, most were nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Because nonfiction relies m more on a speaking career than, you know, the kind of the talk show, show circuits, radio shows, um, being a motivational speaker, that kind of a thing. That goes along with nonfiction far more than it does regular fiction. Uh -huh. um, but if, if, you know, there's a really big lead title, and we'll get to lead title in a little bit, if it's a really big lead title and they're 
they want to sell the author as much as the book, sometimes they'll do that. If the author is, let's face it, attractive, that's going to be a selling point. Mm-hmm. Well-spoken, funny, clever, charming, like all those things. They're trying to sell the whole package deal. Package, yep. Sometimes that will happen. Um, but let, let's talk about lead title and what that designation okay. is. Um, and what that really means for books across the list. Mm-hmm. So as much as we all would love to say this is the case, all the publisher's resources are not distributed equally across all titles on their list. This is a number of factors as to what is designated a lead title in-house. Um you know, obviously the size of the advance, if the, you know, the book came in and it was really hot and a lot of buzz around it, it was a huge 13 house auction or something ridiculous. Like this is clearly going to be a lead title because everyone wanted it. Uh-huh. So, and that usually means you probably acquired it for a lot of money. And so then you're going to have to put a lot more resources into it to make your investment back. So there's kind of that thing, but other reasons books get considered lead titles is there's something inherently hooky or sexy about the concept that they think mm-hmm. has the potential to move a lot of sales. Um, if again, if the author is either well connected or, you know, you can trot out to events and has an inspiring life story or, you know, something like that, that may designate your book as a lead title. Um, so the designation can be a little bit arbitrary, but what does that actually mean practically for the book? It means that, I mean, every book that gets published in-house will have basically what they call kind of the standard marketing publicity deal. They're obviously, whoever works on your books are going to utilize, you know, the contacts and resources that they have. But Lead titles will typically have like sometimes a separate designated team that works only on this title for that season, um, a marketing, you know, or a publicity. Sometimes they will also outsource and bring on consultants to make sure that this lead title will break out. Um, you know, they're the one, the lead titles are usually the ones that get most, the bulk of the advertising. They're the ones where the authors usually get sent on tour, um, you know, in the basically all the books that have hype behind them are probably lead titles. You're going to see them more because they're putting the resources into making sure the book is visible. Um, like I said, it would be great if every possible book could get this kind of treatment, but that is not, in fact, going to be the case. But that doesn't mean that your book won't be successful. I mean, there are plenty of books that were not lead titles that are tremendously successful. I mean, famously, 13 Reasons Why by Jay Asher. That book is incredibly successful, and it was a midlist title. The John Green's first three books <laughs> were essentially midlist, especially like Looking for Alaska and An Abundance of Catherines. Those books were not lead titles. Um, so it does not prevent you from being successful at all. But so lead titles will get priority in at launch. They'll get lead, they'll get priority, uh, at sales conference. Lead titles also get separate meetings for 
art, cover design, you know, that's just kind of the way the resources get broken down in-house. So Mm -hmm. uh, I did want to explain that a little bit because I know a lot of people don't talk about this. And we mentioned it before. When you're an aspiring writer and you're in the query trenches, the query trenches are very democratic. Everyone has to go through them. But once you get out of the query trenches, your publishing story is going to be wildly, vastly different from someone else's publishing story. So this is this sort of stuff is not talked about because how can you talk about it? Mm-hmm. You know, without it either sounding like bitter, you know, that you're being bitter or you have sour grapes or that you're bragging. You know, there's no real way to gracefully talk about your publishing process to in public, essentially. You can't do that. So... You know, a lot of I know a lot of writers who have deals and contracts feel a lot of insecurity about the size of their advance or what their publishing house is doing for them, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, this is why I'm telling all of this to you. This, you know, mm-hmm. publish as much as we want to believe publishing is fair and it's a meritocracy. It isn't. <laughs> no, it's a business, mm-hmm. and that is exactly what it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. On that downer note, <laughs> um, yeah, another thing that is great about sales conference um, is that it's a really good time to trump up the backlist. So, if your book came out uh, several catalog- catalogs ago and it's already you know been out there, it's published, people are buying it, it's doing well. Um, if it's doing well that might be mentioned at sales conference as a reminder of like, hey, this book is doing well. We should continue to sell it. Um, Other times backlist comes up at sales conference is if authors are up for awards um, or if there's anything else going on with um, a book on the backlist if it hit the bestseller list or anything else. And the reason why that stuff kind of comes up um, during sales conferences that all that information can be used to sell the current catalog, the, the catalog that's um, being presented at sales conference. If that's an author whose last book was just nominated for an award and has a new book coming up in this, you know, new cat in this new catalog, the sales team is going to need that information because it's going to likely increase the sales of the author's second book. Um, or if, you know, there's another book by a completely different author that's doing really well and you're using it as a comp title, it's good to be able to say, oh, hey, this is our other book in-house that's, you know, doing really well and has hit all these bestseller lists. And this new book from our catalog is really in that same vein and we think it's going to do equally well. Um, So the sales conference is essentially all about getting the sales force as much information as possible so that you can unleash them and they can go into the world and sell your book. Um, It requires a lot of preparation. Like if you ever follow people, publishing people on Twitter and they start, you know, grumbling about sales conference (laughs) as I have often done in past years, um, the preparation for it requires a lot of time and it eats up 
you know, all of your energy and all of your resources and really kind of actually puts you behind everything else that you need to do because you can't really focus on anything but sales conference prep. There's so much information that you need to compile and you need to check it all to make sure that it is correct. Um, you know, when you're typing, you know, the prices for books over and over again and, you know, you type a nine instead of a five or whatever that is going to adversely affect everything. So there's a lot of triple checking. There's a lot of, you know, last minute changes and rearranging things. Um, it's a really big event for the most part. Even the low key ones that are really casual are still a really big production within your publishing house. It, it, I find it kind of interesting because from the editorial side, sales conference, because the majority of editors actually don't attend, what this, the lists get present actually by the head of the sales departments that we have. We have head of sales for very like either different formats. We have the head of sales for uh, hardcover, for mystery thriller, for romance, for children's, um, and also somebody who is in who does special markets, which do, special markets are things like, like places like Urban Outfitters, you know. So you like you uh -huh. go to a, Urban Outfitters and they've got the kind of like hipstery books on the table. Um, that's a special market. So and and sort of designed books often end up there, like Humans of New York or Post Secret, uh -huh. you know. That kind of stuff. Any sort of like blog turned book often ends up in special markets. Um, but I find it sort of interesting because so we had a number of deadlines in house. So we had all the stuff that we had to enter into our system by before launch, which usually entailed depending on how many books that you've had on your list. And in the case of us younger editors who were other also assisting other editors, we'd also have to do their launch stuff. Um, but basically, you would sit there and you would put in the title and what you think the price would be, roughly a number of pages if you've sent it to production, you've got the estimates back. Um, and then you have to sit and you have to do, you have to come up with the the copy, essentially. You have to give the synopsis of what the book is about, and then you have to give sales points. Like, you literally, for every book that you have, mm -hmm. you have to sit down and think what is a selling point about this book and come up with like five bullet points, you know, and in this case, if it's a previously, pu previously published author with a strong sales track, you'll put those numbers in, in the sales point mm -hmm. bulletin. You'll say last book sold blank amount of copies, you know, and, had, and then, or you'd say so-and-so has X amount of followers on social media. If you happen to have big social media platform, so-and-so has great contacts in the film industry or, you know, these are sales points that you have to come up with for each book. Now, mind you, most editors probably will be working on anywhere from, we'll say, 5 to 20 books a season. So uh -huh. you have to do it for every single book. Um, and so that's kind of launch. You have to get all that information in before launch. And then a couple months will go by, and then we'll get another notification say, now you have to make sure everything's finalized for catalog. And so, again, you would take all the information that you had, uh, any blurbs that you have at this point, um, and you kind of clean it up. There's also, we have to do a keynote, which is that kind of log line 
um, mm-hmm. at the top for every catalog and that's usually like that's again where you may see the x meets y or you would say something like a story of loss and redemption set in rural kentucky you know and um and it was always kind of annoying because i was in publishing when they started shifting from print to digital catalogs mm-hmm. so we were before we were limited by words and then we became limited by character count <laughs> so like coming up with the keynote and and the um the quotes and everything, we would like sit there for every book and we'd have to make sure that it fit within the character requirement in, in the system. And for us, I don't know if this is standard across every publishing industry or every publishing house, but we actually had something we called audios where we had to go to a recording studio and record audios, which is basically the audio version of the tip sheet for sales conference. Um, yep. I'm so glad I didn't have to do that. <laughs> well, every editor has to do it for his or her own books or, and sometimes I did it for whoever I was assisting. I would do their audios too. And that would again mean that you go through the list of everything being published in that season and you would again, give a brief synopsis, the keynote, the synopsis, and then you would actually talk about the book. I actually don't mind, didn't mind doing audios. I like to talk, as you guys can probably tell. So going to the studio, and I usually had a sheet, and I would kind of sit and just talk as though I was talking to somebody about why I loved this book, why I think it would catch people's attention, why it's worth taking a second look. These audios, the purpose of these audios were actually for the sales reps in the field who may not have been able to attend sales conference and they have this catalog they're looking through and when they're driving to their different accounts, they will listen to these audios Mm -hmm. and hear the editor talk about them and hear the editor basically sell it to them and then they'll take that information and then sell it into their Mm -hmm. accounts. That's what the audios were for. And when JJ says drive to their different accounts, that's not an exaggeration. Yes. Salesforce actually like essentially goes on road trips and goes from store to store to store at their various accounts um, and meets people in person. It's, you know, that's what actually happens. Yeah. I mean, this is the stuff that the author has nothing to do with. So you often don't find information about this online because most authors are not aware of this part of the publishing process. Once the book goes off to production, you as the author see copy edits. You will see first pass pages. Sometimes you'll see second pass pages, but that can depend. And then you see the book in print. (laughs) So there's a whole bunch of stuff between you turning in your final draft and the book showing up in bookstores that happens that you don't see. The marketing plan gets drawn up. Uh, it gets sold at sales conference, like sold by, I mean, pitched mm-hmm. sales conference. And then they all go out and sell it into their different accounts. And that's why it takes so long to be traditionally published from the moment you sell your book to when your book comes out. This is why it takes a long time. This is why we launch books a year ahead of time uh, to give us this time to properly set things up, you know, with the buyers of these accounts, with our sales force, getting long lead publicity. You know, those usually require books 
three to six months out, you know, three to six months before the book publishes to get it scheduled right. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that happens. And those who are not in publishing may think, oh my God, this is taking forever. I mean, why can't I just slap a cover in and publish it tomorrow? I mean, you could. You absolutely could if you're self-publishing. But when you're going the traditional publishing route, it doesn't happen that way. There's a lot of things that need to be scheduled, a lot of moving parts and pieces that need to work together to make sure it, the process from when the book gets pro- sent to production to when it gets published moves smoothly. Things like making your printing date on time, things like you know making sure your cover's in by this deadline, your copy is in by this deadline, because... Places like Amazon and Barnes and Noble have deadlines of their own. You know, if we want to have this book in the store by this date, then we need this information by X date. Sometimes books that were scheduled for one season get pushed to bumped another season because something didn't happen on time. I know a friend of mine whose book got bumped a season because they didn't have a cover on time. And stuff like that happens, you know, and... uh, so that that's why it takes so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the other thing about that too, I think, is that I think authors so rarely have a true understanding of how many people are involved in the process of publishing their book. You know, only a few positions within publishing are author-facing. Your, you know, the author is going to obviously know their editor. Um, their publicist, you know, from their copy editor. From there, though, you know, you might speak to your cover designer. You might not. Um, You know, you're probably not ever going to speak to the sales force directly. You're probably never going to speak to, you know, the foreign rights team directly. You know, there's so many people involved all along the way that are working to get your book on bookshelves in bookstores that you will never meet or speak to. Um, and I think that that is always, you know, that's always something too, that I always, I would go to like some author readings, um, and all of the, you know, a a bunch of people from the company would go and meet this author and say, Oh, I loved working on your book. And the author would be like, thank you so much. I loved publishing with you guys. What did you do for my book again? <laughs> like, who, who are you? How do you know who I am? Because you've never you know, met them because there's so many people um, involved in making that happen. And I guess sales conference is a time when all those people are kind of together in one room um, mm-hmm. for a brief moment in time. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good rundown of sales conference. Um, I'm not quite sure what else we can say about it. This happens about three times a year, three or four, Mm -hmm. sometimes four, depending on the, I think, depending on the imprint. Um, but about three times a year, um, just to prep the sales force. This is, this is what's coming out. So go out there and sell our books. Yeah, lots of cheerleading going on at sales conferences. Lots of cheerleading going on. Um, you know, this this is the business side of it that people don't see, and this is what I mean by your book is a product. You know, it's also your work of art. It's also your, you know, creative baby. But it's also a product that gets sold. And publishing is old-fashioned in 
a bazillion ways. But this is one of the things that still kind of remains that they go door to door like salesmen and be like, hey, we'd like you to buy this. I mean, any retail, any sales, any sort of any industry that produces something, this this is something that they do. Um, you know, big soda conglomerates, they have a sales force that have accounts that they sell products to. If they're if a soda company is coming out with a new flavor, the sales force is going into the various chains and markets or whatever to sell this new product to whoever's stocking the store. Uh, and that is the same with books. So uh, that's pretty much it. Yeah. All right. So what are you reading? I, over the weekend, uh, devoured Red Rising by Pierce Brown. Mm, I love that series. Uh, and now I am halfway through Golden Sun. I had no expectations whatsoever. I knew nothing about the books at all um, before I started reading them. And so that was interesting <laughs> to know nothing about them, except that they were popular. You know, I knew that I'd heard about them before, but I, I truly knew nothing. I didn't even really know they were sci-fi. Um, so I had very little knowledge. Uh, devoured the first one, and I'm now halfway through the second one. Um, if it's possible to say this when you read something without any expectations, it's not what I expected. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I have, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Obviously I, I can't wait to finish the second and then uh, move on to the third. You're lucky you're but reading yeah, them that they're... after they all came out, because I had to wait a year between each book. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm lucky that way. <laughs> That's not conscious, but I have noticed that a lot of the series that I've read, I haven't read them until the final book has come out, oh, yeah. which is which is really nice. I did my share of waiting. I waited for Harry Potter. It's <laughs> I feel like that's my entire funny. life is waiting for the next book. Waiting for the next book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. <laughs> that's that's the very very worst. Um, but yeah, I'm really enjoying those, and I feel like I read something else before that, but now it's escaping me. So I can't think of what else I might have been reading. Um, what about you? What are you reading right now? I am reading The Dark Days Club by Alison Goodman. Um, oh, she wrote Eon and Eona, Eona right? Yeah. And um, this is a Regency, I guess it's a paranormal Regency mystery romance thing. Um, so it is a bit different from Eon and Iona, which were high fantasy set in kind of East Asian inspired lands. Um, this is, I mean, I'm pretty early into it, so the paranormal, paranormal elements haven't really come up yet, but I am enjoying them. Um, I do like Alison Goodman. I think she's pretty great. And I also got in from the library, uh, Rebel of the Sands by Alwyn Hamilton, which I've seen kind of described as a, um, like, a thousand and one Arabian Nights meets a Western. Huh. Yeah. So I'm, I am pretty curious about it, and it's got a gorgeous cover. It, it's absolutely beautiful. And uh, I also read the two newest books in 
Maria V. Snyder's Shadow series, or the study series, so it was Night Study and Shadow Study, so I read mm-hmm. those, so yeah, I guess I did a lot of reading. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So then, what are you working on? Um, I have not been working on anything. I don't even know where the time has gone lately. I think I said that exact same thing last week, but it's the truth. I have not written a single word this week or done anything else other than life. <laughs> and life administration mm. is what I've been doing. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I know. What am I writing? Um, I, too, haven't really written a bunch at all. Um, I am, again, I think I mentioned the last time, kind of in between projects trying to figure out where to focus my energies next because I there's a couple of developments have come up and I'm kind of like, oh, maybe I can work on this. And then, but what about this? And it, I'm going to be completely, well, I'm not, I can't be completely transparent, but <laughs> when you write something, after you publish your first book or you have your first book bought and it's under contract, there's a point where you have to sort of consider your long-term career and what your next book would be. Uh, We can go into this in a different episode if you guys are curious about it, but this this is where the business side of publishing comes in again because you write a book and it's a specific kind of book and it's in a particular genre or category and then you want your next book to be the same but different. Or at least your publisher would likely want your next book <laughs> to be the same but different. And they want consistency from an author, clearly. You know, they want to grow an author <clears throat> as a brand. You know, they're they're when you publish an author, you're publishing ideally, you would be publishing the author's whole career. Uh, there are plenty of you know well-known authors who have long, 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 long careers with their publishing houses, because you know your 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 publisher would want to see what's coming next from you, and if it's similar but different to what they published from you previously, they're probably going to want that. Um, and it is a little bit hard to write one thing and then write something in a completely different genre because um, you. This is going to go back to the sales thing again, too, because, for example, you wrote, say you wrote this really dark, gritty thriller. Um, So everybody in the kind of mystery thriller sales force knows of you as the person who wrote this book. And then you follow that book up with this lighthearted romance. It's actually going to be a totally different sales team that handles that book from you. And so then your publisher has to start basically from scratch. You, they can't even bring up your previous book as a comp because it's so vastly different and it would be hitting completely different markets. So the point I am at now is I've got a couple of different projects. One that is a natural follow-up to Winter Song, one, but not under contract. One that is also related to Winter Song, but different category. And then my other two projects are just like both tonally and category categorically different. So I know I probably shouldn't work on those, but they're kind of calling to me. <laughs> but I'm at that point where like, 
I mean, I probably should just write what what's moving me until I've got further word from the powers that be to focus my attention here or there. But that's where I am, which is why mm-hmm. I haven't really written anything. I've written, like I've written a sentence here, a sentence there. I've across all of my projects, by the way, not just, not just <laughs> one. Um, so I have kind of like 10,000 words here. I've got 30,000 words here. I've got, you know, so I've just kind of got like creative project ADD, I guess. Um, that I'm just waiting for like mom or dad to come around and be like, this is what you should be working on. And then I'll be like, okay, but I have not heard <laughs> from mom or dad about which project I should uh, be focusing on. So that's where I am right now. Um, what other media are you enjoying lately? Um, I have been listening to yet another podcast, you guys. I told you I've replaced TV with podcasts. I don't really, <laughs> I don't really watch any other TV anymore. Um, this is not fiction. This is um, an interview podcast called 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. And she interviews and talks with writers um, about their writing process, about their publishing journey, what inspires them, you know, how they keep going. So this is another great kind of writing-related podcast for you guys that you want to listen to. She just did one uh, interview with Lee Bardugo. And I love Lee. Lee's fantastic. And Lee's also an incredibly smart woman. So anytime... Lee's on a podcast and always like, gotta go, gotta go find you and listen to what you have to say. Um, but she, you know, she's interviewed a, a whole bunch of different writers. And, um, so I've been kind of going through her backlog and, and sort of soaking in a whole bunch of wisdom that way. I am also re-watching Batman, the animated series. <laughs> This is actually this was Monday. We Kelly and I had talked on Monday and we were actually talking about Avatar with another friend of ours, Mike. Um, but I was talking to Mike after we'd stopped recording <laughs> and and just talking about various things and, and comics and stuff like that and I was like, I really just want to rewatch that series. Because they're really good. I mean, Batman the animated series, I think I I was not into comics as a child. Um, and I really didn't get into comics until I was in college, really. But my so my exposure to superheroes was really through cartoons. So like the X Men cartoon, I did watch Spider Man kind of briefly, but not 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 as religiously as I watched X Men and Batman the animated series. And I just kind of like it. It's just there's something with the music about it, and it's very noir, you know, and kind of really wonderful animation and I just was kind of like I really in the mood for that and oh and my mother has um recommended a Korean drama to me and she keeps texting me about how hot the guy is and I'm just kind of like oh god mom (laughs) the the lead romantic hero is 30 um he is but he's two months younger than I am which just weirds me out you know it makes me his nuna and i'm just like i don't this just but she keeps texting me like he's so hot in his uniform i'm like i <laughs> uh, uh. 
But it also has my my celebrity doppelganger, and so anytime this particular actress Song Hye Kyo, every time she's in a Korean drama or a new drama, my mother always lets me know because she's like, oh, you know, it's your celebrity doppelganger. She's in another drama. You should go watch it. So Mark is in Nashville this weekend for a conference himself. So I think that probably is what I might be doing. What about you? Um, I. I guess the thing that I am excited about this week, I actually haven't listened to it because it hasn't quite released yet, Um, but there is a new podcast called The West Wing Weekly, (laughs) which is um, being hosted by Josh Molina, who was an actor who was on The West Wing. (laughs) Um, He was on it about halfway through, I think he joined in season four, and he was not a particularly popular character. Was this after Rob Lowe had left? Yes. Okay. Um, well, I think they, they overlap, you know, for like half a season and then Rob Lowe leaves. Um, but he, with another friend of his, um, are, is going to be watching and recapping and talking about West Wing episode by episode, starting with season one. So before he was ever in it, um, and going forward. And I don't quite know if it's going to be amazing or terrible, I think it has um, the opportunity to be either, but I'm really excited about it because as I've mentioned previously, I am rewatching um, The West Wing currently. And I really like podcasts that go through a large scale show episode by episode. It's just, I, I always loved... Um, television without pity when yeah. it was still up and running. I love reading recaps of TV shows that I enjoy. Um, and I love hearing smart and funny people, um, comment insightfully about television shows that I enjoy. So podcasts that do that are really up my alley. And so I'm excited about this one. I, I don't, I don't know how it's going to be. Joshua Malina is or is it Melina or Melina? I think it's Melina. Sure I think it's Melina. It. Yeah, I think it is. Um, he is, you know, a somewhat uh, controversial character. His brand of humor is a bit off color. And, you know, we'll kind of see where it goes. But uh, for now, I heard about it today and I'm excited about it. That's sort of similar. To, there's a, a podcast called The X-Files Files by with Kumail Nanjiani. Um He's so I, w- I was listening to that, but he doesn't update quite so regularly. Um, but he would go, he'd basically invite his friends over, and he's a comedian and an actor. I think he's in Silicon Valley. Um, he's a comedian actor of Pakistani descent, and he also hosts another podcast called The Indoor Kids with his wife, and they talk about video games. I don't listen to that podcast because, as I've said previously, I'm not a gamer, but I so he does he does the X-Files files and it's like him and a bunch of his friends and they kind of talk about the story and and they critique the episodes and everything like that. Um, And apparently, so the X-Files reboot had come out and I did watch it, although I didn't mention it on this podcast. I have mixed feelings about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um... We'll just say that Chris Carter is his own worst enemy, but there were episodes in the in the reboot that I loved, that I just really brought back everything that I loved about the X-Files. Um, but anyway, 
Kumail Nanjiani, who I guess through this podcast, you know, and people listening to it and everything, managed to get a role on the X Files reboot. Um, <laughs> I know I just love that. I just thought that was kind of the greatest story, but that is it. It, it is sort of similar, I guess, to that. Um, mm-hmm. But he doesn't update that frequently. I think you know, obviously, he's busy and he's filming and he's a working actor, but. I was kind of, and I just like hearing him talk about the show because it brings back my fond memories of the show about how much mm-hmm. I loved it and just how sort of a seminal TV show it was in its day. You know, there's nothing like the X Files on television today, like at all. You know, we've gone past the whole serial format, so the episodic thing, aside from Law and Order, doesn't really exist in the same way. But The X-Files 2 was kind of the first show in the 90s that had overarching arcs. Mm -hmm. The first show to kind of do it, and they did it by accident, not accident, they did it out of necessity because Gillian Anderson had to leave because she was pregnant. Um, So this whole extended like alien mythology basically came about because she had to leave the show and because before that it was just going to be kind of an anthology of weird more or less um but there's still kind of nothing like it there especially especially for the 90s the way the show treats scully as this really wonderful strong independent character who doesn't take shit from anyone who <laughs> usually has to go save Mulder's butt from whatever trouble he's gotten himself into. And I think this is where I got that tr- that romantic trope that I love of the emotionally stoic female and the emotionally fluent male. It's Mulder and Scully. Like, when I look back on it, I'm like, yeah, it's totally Mulder and Scully. Mulder's totally in touch with his feelings, and he's the one who goes by his gut instinct. He's very emotional. Um, whereas Scully's the scientist, she's the skeptic. She's kind of the one who's like, she's like, no, <laughs> let's uh-huh. not leap to the chupacabra. <laughs> let's like go through this step by step. Uh, man, I, I feel like I want to rewatch the X-Files again. <laughs> <laughs> That's all for this week. Next week, we will be covering an, a topic in what we call the writing life. We will be talking about author platform and brand how to create it, how to maintain it, how to promote it, all that sort of stuff. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Publishing Crawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website at penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.
follow me, uh, Kelly. Wow. <laughs> Blueberries. <And> you... <laughs> Hello. What's my name again? <laughs> <laughs>